A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Then who can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Greetings, church. Uh, Coming to you as you are watching this uh, online and you're hunkered down uh, wherever you happen to be in this season where we happen to be uh, having to live stream and all that. And I was thinking that in this season, there are words that normally we don't use at all, uh, not a regular part of our um, vernacular, or maybe words we didn't even know what they meant before, words that maybe we never taught our kids, but our kids know what they are now. Words like pandemic, uh, vaccine, recession, contact tracing. These are actually words that have become things we say and hear literally every day. And you all know the reasons for that. But what this means is that it has also surfaced fears and questions that normally are also not a part of our everyday life. And even a question like this, is the end near? And I'm not being dramatic here because I think there are a couple of ways that this question, which is kind of a haunting question for all of us, um, is coming up or has come up. There is legitimately the fear on behalf of some of our loved ones, some of the people that we would say are in sort of marginal situations with their health. Um, And some of us have actually in this season grieved the loss of loved ones as they have passed because of what's going on. But it has increased, like literally, think about this, we are uh, keeping track of death tolls every day in, in every country of the world. And so this question of the end, which we don't ask a lot, and even when it comes up, is very uncomfortable for a lot of us for all kinds of understandable reasons. And maybe some of us even in cultures or families where you never talk about it, never think about it, and, and if it ever had come up at a funeral or whatever, or when someone was really sick, it gets very silent, it's very uncomfortable. Um, but even actually, I think subconsciously, the fear of death and dying in our own lives existentially has come up for all of us regardless of age and stage or whatever health you happen to be in. And then add to this some of the what we call grand or the apocalyptic 
um, you know, kind of thinking apocalypsis meaning sort of the end, which usually mostly lived in the past in the realm of like, you know, apocalyptic movies like, you know, I Am Legend or, you know, horror films or the end or whatever that is, has become front and center. And people are saying, is this the end? You know, is, is this how or look at this post-apocalyptic or, um, you know, um, dystopian societies, which books like The Hunger Games or whatever, like in the end, this is how it's going to be and it'll be bad. And these are the questions that are coming up. And then there are many people of faith who are adding in things like prophecy and stuff and saying, well, maybe this is the end and this is what we are um, talking about. And, and I think the, the question we want to wrestle with even this morning as we are in a series um, called History Maker, how Jesus has changed our lives, we've said, look, actually, his life, his story, the, the word that his biographers used to describe it was the word gospel, which means good news. And, and in particular for this question is, is there good news in the end or after the end? We want to know, is there? And, and the good news is, yes, there is, that Jesus himself does not only, um, has not only affected history as in sort of the past, has not only, as we've been talking about these recent weeks, dramatically changed our lives in the present, but it, he and what he has said and done is also good news for the future, even if we are contemplating scary questions about the end. Um, and so we're going to do what we've done throughout this series, which is to give you a chance to ask some questions. And so that number is there. It'll be up there on the screen for you as we go through this. And you can text questions. We'll take a couple of those um, near the end of the message. This question, though, of in the end, you know, while we say typically is asked sort of by philosophers or in uh, religious classes or maybe in those people who are making apocalyptic um, movies or writing literature, is actually something that Everybody, whether um, you have a religious background or not, every kind of worldview actually attempts to answer. And, um, and I want to explain it to you in a way that was explained to me just recently. I was speaking at a conference in March with 1,500 young adults right before we were told not to gather in groups like that. Shook a lot of hands, hugged a lot of people that day. I'm good. Um, but I happened to be on the stage uh, that day with uh, someone who has been sort of a, a mentor but also a friend, uh, and that's Bruxy Cavey. And he was explaining something that day that was so helpful for me that I think will help you understand this. If you think about your life like this, okay, so, so your elbow is sort of your birth, and, um, and then your fingertips are uh, the end of your life, that that's the end of your life. He said some people in some worldviews sort of have this idea that, okay, so there's the end, you know, that, that starts here and then, or beginning of your life, and then ends here, death, the dying, or whatever, and then the new life, the next life, um, the afterlife begins there. And there are lots of worldviews and religions and faith systems that, and many Christians who, you know, have an understanding of, okay, this is how it works. I live my life, you know, and then I die, and then the next life um, comes into play. So there are worldviews that think like that. Then there are um, maybe in your worldview or as you grew up or even now or you have friends who are like, no, there's, there's nothing. It's like it's the atheist worldview. It's like, no, at the end, there's a cliff. You know, in the end, that's it. There's nothing after that. The end comes. Um, you start here and then that's the end. And then, then there are others, and, and you can even do this with me. So if you do this, we do this, we do this, you can do this. There are those at the circle of life. The circle, there's a circle. There's no actually end or every end is a new beginning. And it sort of uh, kind of keeps going in a, in, a, in a cyclical kind of way. 
And really, actually, all worldviews, whether you consider yourself religious or not, whether those worldviews would say, oh, these are religious views or not, have this kind of idea that there's a beginning and an end and then a new beginning and there is that go, there's, there's the beginning and the end and that's it. There's a, a circle and it goes round and round and round. And this isn't just sort of interesting sort of religions 101 or worldviews 101. What we believe about all of this has tremendous implications, right? For those of us that would say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is how it works, right? There's, there's this up to this point, and then we die. And in fact, some of us, it's like this, right? Like it's like a huge difference, you know, that can actually leave us saying, well, you know, we just sort of have to endure life. You know, it, it's lousy. It's sort of bad news. Um, and, um, you know, good news is coming, but it's bad right now. And we'll just sort of live. The temptation actually is to live sort of disconnected from this, because this is all bad, and it's going to go away, and it's all broken. We're waiting for heaven someday, one day, nirvana, whatever that is, that, that's going to come. Uh, and so that can leave us actually disconnected from this life. Then there are those who say, well, no, there's no end. Historically, it was like this. Hey, life gets better and better and better. And make it as good as you can. And then there's a cliff, right? More often than not, these days, people feel like, no, life, it's a slide to the end. That's what a lot of these apocalyptic kind of movies and books are like. No, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, you know? And then everything falls off a cliff. But either way, this idea of saying, well, try to find meaning in this life, even though at the end, there's no meaning. There's nothing. It's a cliff or it's a mountain, but either way, in the end, it's over, can leave us actually sort of feeling like, well, pretty selfish in life. You say, well, you should try to be a good person. Well, why? Because it's a cliff at the end. It doesn't matter whether you view it like this or whether you view it like this. You only live once. Just get what you can while you can get it. And that can lead actually to sort of not only selfishness and narcissism, but hopelessness. And maybe that's why the curve has gone like this for many of us in this generation. And then there are those that would say, oh, yeah, no, it's like this. It's actually good news and bad news over and over and over again. And you try to get better and do better and be better so you can get on a better cycle. And if you get on a bad cycle, well, you kind of want to get out of it. But if you are on a bad cycle, nobody's on a good cycle is going to help you out because you kind of deserve to be there. That's how it works. And so there's lots of actually implications of what we believe about all of this to how we live really every day. In fact, the whole point is what you think about the end and the future has a profound impact on how you live and think today. And interestingly, Jesus described this whole process as very different than any of those things. But he did talk about it a lot. Even in the passage that was read for us, the story that we're looking at today, these phrases come up. Um, eternal life, the kingdom of heaven or God, and the age to come. Now, for religious people, Christian people, these have all been uh, phrases and terminologies associated with sort of an idea like this, a worldview like this. We live, and then after death, eternal life, kingdom of heaven, age to come. And yet Jesus said something very different. And I, and I want you to do this with me. You put your hands together like this. He actually described life now, and life to come like this. That there is an overlap, that there's something that is ending or coming to an end, eventually will, but something else that has already begun. And this is all the way through the language and the teachings of Jesus, even in the passage that was read for us when we talk about things like eternal life or the kingdom of heaven, the age to come. Jesus' perspective on this was always actually like this. And one of the things we discover is, as Jesus talked about it, and why this matters so much, which we're going to get into today, um, was not a new idea for Jesus. Actually, if you read the story of Scripture, all the way along, it was pointing 
to this. And, and I, want, I want you to see it in a way that um, you know, can be told way better than me um, through uh, Tim Mackey and the guys who brought us the Bible Project, which if you're ever looking for a resource trying to understand anything about Scripture, it's one of the best you can find online. But I want you to watch this uh, short uh, clip as they describe and listen carefully for how they talk about what is eternal life? What does it mean for us as humans? What did it mean and what did it mean now? So have a look. So I wonder if you notice in that this trajectory, this story, that the, in a sense the whole story of humanity had to do with eternal life and, um, and really the present and the end, so to speak, and what happens after. And interestingly, we find in the life of Jesus, Jesus in, in describing um, life like this, describe that the ages, the age now and the age to come, are actually overlapping. That we are living in a time between or in the overlap of both ages. The end of one and the beginning of another. That they are distinct from one another, this sort of idea of like earth and heaven, but they are connected now and later, distinct but connect. And that in a sense, when Jesus uh, arrived on the scene, he began saying, Heaven has arrived. The kingdom of heaven has actually arrived or has already begun. And this is something we actually see in terms of coming down to like practically speaking, okay, what does that even mean in the story that we're looking at um, today? Where someone comes to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And that's Rich the Young Ruler. Okay, it's not his name. He was a young rich ruler is how they described him. Um, but he asks this question. He comes to Jesus and says, how do I, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And there's something really interesting, implicit, in his question that then starts this conversation with Jesus that really helps us understand this whole thing about the age now and the age to come and eternal life and why, what does it mean about the end, but what does it mean about now? See, as he's asking this question, he's definitely thinking about this. This is what he's thinking. He's thinking, okay, this is eternal life because he uses the word inherit, right? What's something you inherit? It's something you get later. You're gonna get, you get it later, an inheritance later. And eternal life um, the word life that's translated from the Greek, it's from the Greek word, not uh, the Greek word bios, which means physical life. And maybe if you've been a part of our church, you've heard us describe this before. It's actually from the word zoe, which is a, a description of vitality to the greatest extent, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, like everything as alive as it can be fully alive. In other words, life to the full, the best uh, way we could imagine that. And eternal obviously mean ongoing, never stopping, having a character or a quality that never dies, never diminishes, never rusts, never fades. And so he's asking, and in the Jewish world with this context was, hey, there's a day coming when we will get life to the full forever that will never be taken away from us by the Roman Empire or by sickness or by uh, poverty or by anything like that. But he was thinking about it in the future. He says, okay, so how do I get this life? How do I inherit it? And he's kind of somebody who we, we know that he was rich and that he was a ruler, like in the synagogue or, or um, you know, the, the, the religious system there. So in the eyes of the world around him and in himself, he would be like, well, I know I'm headed there. Like, I, I kind of know I'm going to inherit it because I'm wealthy, which means God has blessed me, right, in an agrarian society where you needed it to rain, you know, in order to grow crops or all that you need to be able to catch fish or things needed to happen for you that you didn't necessarily have control over. Well, if you, if you 
things went well for you. You made a lot of money. You inherited land, whatever. Okay, well, that's God's blessing, clearly. That was what they thought. Um, Jesus upended that in many ways, but that's what they thought. So it's like, okay, well, I'm wealthy, and I'm a religious person, which probably those two things are connected for me, so I think I'm good. So he's kind of just checking in with Jesus, like, I'm good, right? Like, you know who I am, and I'm wealthy or whatever, but just, you know, you seem to know a lot about God, so I'm just going to check in and make sure. And Jesus answers his question in a very surprising way, in, in a way that would have been confusing for him, and totally turns this question on its head. He says to him, well, you know the law, like you're, supposed, you're a ruler, I don't need to tell you, you keep these things. But then he says to him, but you lack one thing. Like if you want to inherit eternal life, you lack or you're missing something, which maybe he would have said, okay, well, I've kept all the laws, like what, I know, all, what am I missing? And he says one thing, but he says three things, but it's actually all one thing. He says this, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then follow me. He said, Jesus, three things. One thing. He says, no, this is all one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the question is, what was he getting at? Why did Jesus say this? And what was he implying in this? I think we need to be careful to say, well, he wasn't saying that wealth is bad and he was asking the guy to make a vow of poverty and now then, you know, follow him. And then if he did that, then someday, one day, he would get eternal life. Remember, Jesus didn't have that view of eternal life. He said these things are, are overlapped. That one is, is uh, connected to the other. Heaven begins now. Why, what was he saying to this man? Why was he saying, sell everything, give to the poor, and follow me? All three of these things were actually interconnected and all part of one thing. His idea was saying, you have an idea of eternal life, which is somehow connected to like the life you have now. So you think, okay, you're wealthy, it's good, and you have some health, or whatever. It's going to be even better. You're going to have even more wealth and whatever, because if, look, if this is your life now, man, it's like this is going up. That's what you think eternal life is. But Jesus is actually saying to him, no, eternal life, life to the full, has a quality and a nature to it that is actually very different than what you think it is. And so what he was inviting him to do was not a condition that would allow him to receive eternal life someday, one day. He was saying to him, bruh, which apparently is the new, if you used to say brother, you don't say brother anymore. If you say bro, you don't say bro anymore. If you say bruh, you don't say that. Now apparently, according to my nephew, it's bruh now, okay? Eternal life starts now. This thing that he was asking him to do is eternal life. This is what he was saying. You don't have to wait for this to inherit something. You're missing the point. Eternal life starts now. It looks like people who have many things, strength, health, wealth, position, power, uh, knowledge of God, which all these, this guy apparently had all of it, to take it and bless others, to look for those who don't have it and make them rich by your life. That is what he turned, that's what life to the full looks like. That's why Jesus had been doing all of these things. He had been showing them, this is life to the full. Eternal life starts now. That's why he wasn't saying this is a condition to get into somewhere. He's saying, this is what eternal life looks like. If you want it, start now. How you treat other people and how you respond to me. That's eternal life. 
Eternal life is found in me. So bless the people around you since you're so wealthy and come and find life in me. It starts now. You don't have to wait till this coming someday, one day. This is what eternal life is. The scriptures tell us that Rich the young ruler, his response to this was sadness. Kind of his, his face kind of fell. And Jesus actually goes on to say, it's almost impossible for him to do. That's why he was sad. Why? Almost impossible for him to do the thing, the one thing that Jesus said he lacked. And remember, this wasn't, Jesus didn't ask this of everyone. So there's something going on in this specific conference. It wasn't that everyone that came to Jesus, he said, well, you have to sell everything. He said different things to different people. He said to this man, this is what you lack. And then he goes on to tell his disciples who are listening and the people around what to explain to them. Why is this man sad? It's almost impossible for him. Why? And he tells them this. He's like, well, how easy do you think it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Now, if, you know, have you ever seen a sewing needle or whatever? There's a little part of the needle that's very small and thin that the thread has to go through. He says, why is this hard? Well, is it hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Yes, obviously. Why? Why, cannot, why can't a camel go through the eye of the needle? Because the camel has baggage, <laughs> It's too big. It's too bulky. It's an absurd picture, right? Jesus is like this camel and you're picturing, and they lived in that, they, you know, these tall. I got a chance when we were in the Middle East a couple years ago to hang out with some camels, and um, some of the people we were with even let them kiss them. I did not do that, okay? I'm not, that's not a thing for me. They're huge, gangly, big. And so this picture, they would have known. It's like, yeah, that's absurd. That could never fit. Why? Baggage. He says, that man is holding on to something. He's carrying something. It's with him. I asked him to let it go so that he could experience eternal life, that eternal life was actually found in partly in letting it go, and he couldn't. It was too much. It's too heavy. He's stuck to him. He's gripping it too tightly. Now, the disciples, right, who are listening, who are not, were not wealthy like this, this man. And the, the, the way they describe it, he's like, would have been immensely wealthy. Now, a couple of them would have been Matthew probably, but most of them would have, you know, been, you know, middle class or if there even was one, but probably lower class going from, uh, you know, mouth, hand to mouth, kind of week to week. And they said, hey, Jesus, we left a bunch of stuff. Like we did that. You know that thing you asked him to do? We don't like that because we did it, right? Like we've left houses and, and families and like to follow you. So we're good, right? And, and it's actually the other side of it. Never mind those who say, oh, I have lots to give away. They would have been people maybe who were more like maybe some of us would say, well, I didn't have lots to give away. I don't have much. And they're saying, Jesus, we didn't have much, but we gave it away to follow you. And Jesus says, listen, anyone who has given up houses, life, families, or whatever to follow me will not fail to get far more than what they've given up. Anyone who has given up, he said, or, or let it go in this life, anyone who has done what I've asked this young man to do will not fail in the age to come. In other words, already now to experience and in the age to come greater things, blessings. But he says this, you can't 
enter eternal life if you're gripping this life too tightly. And remember, when we say enter, he wasn't talking about um, entrance requirements to heaven. It's almost like you can't experience this new life, this eternal life that begins now. Yes, it continues on into eternity after you die. Yes, there is a point when this life is over, but it begins now, but you can't enter it. You can't experience it. He says you can't enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. He wasn't talking about entrance requirements in the end. He said you cannot experience this life to the full if you're gripping the stuff of this life, homes, money, relationship status, all of that, social status, so tightly. And that's why he says to them, what I have asked of him, I have asked of you. I ask of everyone. You have to, in the words of two artists, you know, Frozen and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, let it go. Give it away. He wasn't saying to them, oh, money's bad. Houses are bad. If you love your family, it's bad, right? Some of the things Jesus says about family, we're like, what? That sounds so crazy. But he was in a culture where family was everything. It was your finances, your social status, everything like that, all of your obligations. And Jesus was saying to them, look, these things aren't bad, but if you hang on to them too tightly, you will not be able to experience eternal life if you're gripping them too tight. If you either have them or you don't have them. If, you're, if you have it and you're fixed on keeping it or you don't have it and you're grasping for it, maybe grasping, gripping, whatever, that, that ha- what your family status is, what your relationship status is like, what your home is like or the one you want or the one you had or your money or whatever, your social status, where you fit in the pecking order and the ladder of relative importance in this world. If you hang on to it too tightly, you cannot grasp eternal life, which is why the invitation is to let it go and to give it away. Now, the truth is, the disciples, even as they heard this, they couldn't do it. They couldn't understand. The rich man actually went away sad. It was too hard. He couldn't get it. And the disciples, in one sense, didn't understand it. They didn't understand. Well, what do you mean if, if in this life we are willing to let it go, to lay it down, to give it away, to use whatever we have in the service of others, even to the point, as Jesus says at other times, of your life to give yourself away? Anyone who has done that will gain. You don't have to be afraid of the end or what it will cost you or what you actually have to empty yourself because you will get more. It is better You will actually find life to the full if you are willing to lay your life down, to give what you have away, and to follow me. They couldn't understand it until he showed them. See, this is why the death and resurrection of Jesus are the high point, the exclamation point, the explanation of everything he said and did. It wasn't just about, do you have some money? Give, whatever. He actually, in the end, showed as he gave his life away, as he laid it down, as he lived his life in the service of others, as he was willing to die in our places, he was willing to give his life away, God raised him from the dead. And so, and so he, he lived out this idea, anyone who is given it will not fail to receive as much eternal life. And it wasn't like, oh, just this internal experience of being happy. He got a new body. 
a new life. It was in the full. He lost his life and he gained a new one, a completely new body. That's why Jesus' physical resurrection means so much. This isn't just you're going to have this internal experience of eternal life. No, eternal life, remember we said, is life to the full, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Jesus' death and resurrection actually showed them a living example. What happens when you do what I have to tell you to do, I will show you. And after his disciples understood this, oh, they said, yeah, eternal life begins now. We now don't need to be afraid to give away what we have, to use it in the service of others, to lay our lives down and follow him because we will gain life to the full, which begins now. It's actually what explains, the only thing that explains the behavior of the early church, of people who were willing to use what they had in the service of others to even lay their lives down trusting that God will do this in the end. If you let it go, instead of hanging on tightly, you will find life. Before we talk about and end with, well, what does that mean for us today? How do we practically then begin to experience this eternal life if it does indeed start now? I want to give you a chance to text in your questions if you have them. And as you do that, I want to and reflect on what we've just been talking about. I want to invite you to listen and sing along to a song that talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how this has changed everything. So a couple of questions came in. Uh, one of them is, is living in eternal life the same as living in the kingdom of God? And I would say, according to Jesus, and actually the whole testimony of Scripture, yes, um, they don't mean exactly the same thing, but they're very connected, and they are all about um, how we receive and experience or share in God's life and God's ways. When Jesus came, he actually said, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, and when you read those things, I think you can understand them th the same way, is here, has arrived. And I think there was a couple things he was meaning. One is he was pointing to himself as the king, as the one who was supposed to, was going to inaugurate God's kingdom, which was a loaded term for people who thought at the time kingdom was about, you know, empires and thrones and actual military and all of that. Um, but he was also saying it starts now, which again, they would have thought, oh great, the revolution has begun. And it was a revolution. <laughs> But it was a totally different kind of revolution. And as Jesus began to explain what the kingdom of God was like, and some people have used the phrase, it was an upside-down kingdom. It was very different than how they would have imagined or seen what every other kingdom around them looked like, certainly than the Roman Empire. He was trying to explain to them, this is eternal life. That's why he's saying to this rich young man, you think eternal life is a someday, one day. It starts now, and it looks like what I am telling you to do. In fact, his instruction was a life-giving instruction, right? When he says, give away what you have, this is how you're going to share in God's life because this is who God is. In fact, God gave his son. He has given it, and Jesus was going to go on and give away his life as a demonstration of what the kingdom of God is like. And so these, these two ideas, and so one of the ways to help you understand when Jesus has, especially in Luke, but the other gospels, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, think about it when you read it as explaining a new kind of life, a new way of living that actually begins to be, to bring vitality into our lives, even though some aspects or many aspects of it are upside down, uh, different than the way we would think, or even are going to cost us something. The whole and that's why the cross and the, and the resurrection become 
the, the high points of describing what eternal life looks like, Jesus ultimately lays his life down and literally, physically, but spiritually, emotionally, everything is raised to life. It was this picture of saying, this is what eternal life looks like. Another question that came, and this is, I put it all on one screen, it's small font, but let me read it to you. God is loving and calls us to love each other, but the scriptures command us to have on the armor of God and engage in spiritual battle. How do I reconcile these two things? And this is a great question. And one of the, 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 the reference here about spiritual battle, uh, the question referenced Ephesians chapter 6, which was a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church, and he said, something really significant. He says, put on the armor of God that you'll be able to wage war. But he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And this is something interesting when you go back to this idea of the kingdom of God. Both the people in Jesus' time, and to be honest, in our time still, want a kingdom that is of this world. Meaning, we feel like we need power, whether that's like military might, or maybe if we're more progressive, political clout, followers on social media, whatever it is, we need power, influence, wealth. Um, we need to be um, in the majority, not in the minority. We fight being on the margins of minority. And there's, there's lots of um, conversation, especially these days, that is kind of anti-government, even coming from Christian circles, that we need to be a Christian nation again. And we need to, I'll be honest, a lot of that comes from this idea of kingdom and saying, oh, we need these things if we're going to succeed. But Jesus in the New Testament church had none of those things. And they turned the world upside down, literally, through this subversive, humble, self-sacrificing, um, people-loving, radical self-giving service. It turned the world upside down to the point that the entire Roman Empire was, was within three centuries on its knees saying, okay, you win, we're going to be a, a Christian nation too, which brought in a whole other dimension of church and state and all this stuff. But the point is, and the Apostle Paul made it clear, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And that Gospel Project video we referenced, which is called the New Humanity, um, or Bible Project, sorry, it's called the New Humanity, talks about the powers, right? And how we are meant to actually free people from the power, not of the empires around and the enemies, not other people. It is the power of sin and the enemy that has been the age-old enemy of, of God and the people of God that tries to destroy us and by destroying relationships with God, with each other, and from the inside out. So our battle, he says, is not, don't be tricked. It's not like this world, Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. And so that's something really important. The weapons we use are love, our self-sacrifice, humility, and a radical belief that the, the new has come and that we actually will gain eternal life by following these upside-down, revolutionary ways of Jesus. So does this mean, speaking of those revolutionary ways, that I have to give up and sell everything I have to experience eternal life? Yes and no. <laughs> you know, when Jesus was asking, he wasn't saying, and he doesn't say to us, um, you can't have money. You can't have family. You, like Jesus does not really provocative things about family that I think we're reading them going, what do you mean like leaving families and brothers and sisters? You can't have, he wasn't saying that. What he was saying was and some of his comments about family have a lot to do with the fact that in that culture especially, family was everything. Getting married, if you were a young woman, was everything because there was no way, like you needed, you weren't, 
there was no such thing as being an a independent single woman because it was a patriarchal society. You needed a husband, and if you were going to have, um, you know, uh, and to be able to have children, which was your inheritance, if you were going to be cared for financially, and so families, everything. If you were a man, you wanted to have a wife so you could have children, so they could carry on the business that you have, because that's how it works, family businesses and all of that stuff. And so their whole livelihood and their whole sense of like what is most important and even what is blessing, right? Blessing would have been like crops and children and, you know, household and family wealth. And Jesus is saying, that's not eternal life. That is not true. Jesus comes as a single, poor man and says, I have eternal life. It's found in me. It was totally upside down to them. So when he invites us, it is really much, uh, really very much so this idea of letting it go. Don't look at those things and think, ah, that's what's going to give me life. And I'll tell you, a lot of people, I think, experience great disappointment in marriage or move on from marriage because they believed in that relationship would be eternal life, zoe, life to the full. And of course, it's not. It's everyday life. It's, it's hard. It's different challenges than being single, but it has its own. And they're crushed by the loss of expectation, the disappointment, and they think, well, this is not. Or whether job or education, or I got this education, now I can't get this job, or whatever, my body, how I thought it would be, how I thought I would look. We are holding these things and saying, this is vitality. This is eternal life. And when they don't deliver it, they crush us. And so when Jesus is saying, that's not where life is found. Let go and follow me. And so that, I think, is, is this experience of experiencing eternal life is beginning to say, we can find vitality in a life of service, in a life of generosity, in a life of reckless giving in a way that we can actually sacrifice or be willing. And, to, you know, if you, if you are married, this idea is saying, don't leave your spouse to follow Jesus. It's saying, I have to rethink marriage in light of following Jesus. If I'm a single person, I may still want to, be, to find somebody to be married or whatever, but I'm not going to grasp and grip that thinking, that's where I'm going to find eternal life. Or if I want to have a child, I'm gonna, or I want my children to grow up to be a certain way, then I'm going to, no. How, what does it mean to follow Jesus in whatever state I might be? And that's what actually the New Testament describes. And Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, hey, whatever state you find you're in, yourself in, be content in it and follow Jesus in it. So how do I rethink my marriage and my family if I have one in light of following Jesus? How do I rethink if I don't in light of following Jesus? It's not about not having those or those things being evil. It's about saying, how do these things actually, as I follow Jesus, help me find where do we go from here? What does this mean for us? If this is the invitation to Jesus, this is what it means to, to experience eternal life that starts now and actually prepares us for the end. Thinking about it this way, you can lose or you can lose. There's two different words there, right? You can lose or you can lose. You can lose your life or you can loosen your grip. And by lose your life, Jesus used this phrase to actually say, hey, when you hold so tightly to things that are good but not enough for you, and you treat them as this is life to the full, and you squeeze them and you hold on to them either because you have them or you're, you're grasping for them, your life actually ebbs away, right? We can, and maybe we can all exp feel like, yeah, when we hang on too tightly to stuff, it, our life actually, we actually lose our life. But if we loosen our grip, 
not because they're evil, but because we don't need to hang on to them because they are not eternal life, that God has something more for us as we are able to loosen our grip, we are able to begin to experience his life. So I have questions for you. Is there anything that you're gripping too tightly right now? Either because you have it and you want to hang on to it or you don't have it and you're trying to get it. And this is certainly a, a, a season in life where a lot of these things are, are shaken and so our temptation is to grab on, right? When we feel like our foundation is shaky. For some of us, is it money? Is it our financial situation that we're grasping for or gripping onto? Is it future plans, right? Thinking about even the summer being upset and it's like has destabilized us and we're gripping on to what we had hoped it would be. For some of us as students, you were thinking about graduation and what was going to happen and a summer job you really needed and all of that. And so your temptation is to, is you've been gripping it. Your heart has been gripped around it. Your mind, you know, you've been thinking about it. For others, relationships, people you're afraid of losing or you have lost or relationships you feel like you don't have or that aren't, that it has gripped you, like you are holding onto it too tightly and it is sucking life away from you. For others, it may be health. Others, it may be time. As we think about this, what, what am I hanging on to? What am I gripping? What is baggage for me right now? It's too much. I can't actually experience the eternal life, the life that God invites me to have and I'm reluctant to actually let it go and to begin to give it away. I want to invite you into Jesus' invitation, which is one of giving, not gripping. Which may be a new question to ask is not just what am I gripping tightly, but what do I have a lot of right now? You know, it's not a question we ask very often. We're always like, I don't have enough this, I don't have enough that. What do I have a lot of or seemingly more than most people? Am I rich in this area? Maybe finances, maybe time. It may be relationships. You may feel like, yeah, my relationships are really rich and fulfilling. It may be just sort of emotional, uh, uh, you know, health or physical health. I have this, it's actually, if I have so much of it, what can I give? Is this something that actually Jesus is calling me not only to just release, but to actually give it away? Now, I think many of us, right, can relate to either... <laughs> The, the rich man who's like, oh, this is hard, right? He was sad. He's like feeling it, you know? And the disciples, I think too, even though they, most of them wouldn't have been rich, also felt, Lord, we've given up. Like this is hard. Why would you do this? Well, my mind went to something we were talking about in my home group this week and actually have shared with you before. And it's a story by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's an author and a preacher, um, and he talked about walking through a cemetery one day and seeing a giant slab of rock that had been placed as sort of a gravestone over a grave. But he said the slab, which was huge and thick, was split completely apart as a tree was growing up right through the middle of it. But he said to think about when that first, that stone, that slab was laid and a little acorn fell into the grave. At that point, that seed, that little thing, was no match for the slab of rock that was literally crushing it and covering it. But over time, that slab was no match for the tree that literally split it in half. I thought, this is a beautiful picture because Jesus actually described his kingdom 
like a seed, like something small that gets buried into the ground. In fact, something that falls to the ground and dies. You know, the little parts of us die when we have to give away what we are hanging on to, especially if we've scratched and clawed to get it. This is something little that even seems a little thing, but it's big to us. It dies and it seems like a loss and it seems like it's not going to change anything in our lives to do something like this. But Jesus says, my kingdom over time is slow but sure. And over time, eternal life grows up inside you and breaks through even death itself. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to trust Jesus, who himself has passed from death to life and says, follow me, trust me. It begins now.